Well, hello and welcome to the third episode of the Glimpse from the Globe geopolitical podcast, Geopolitik. My name is Luke Phillips. I'm a senior correspondent at Glimpse from the Globe, and I am joined today by my co-host, Jack Anderson, live from Washington, D.C. Jack, welcome. Thanks, Luke. Always good to be back, joining you via Skype. And it's uh, and I'm joined here in Los Angeles by one of Glimpse's younger correspondents, Katya Lopatko. Uh, Katya focuses a lot on European and Russian security uh, security ideas, and given that we are talking about European and Eurasian geopolitics, Katya is a resident expert on this, so we're very happy to have her here. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the uh, I think the, the, the format we're going to take for all of these, uh, with all the different regions we go, is we're going to go through the basic geopolitical structure of each of the regions that we cover. Now, the region we're covering right now is Europe and Eurasia, mostly Europe. Uh, and so, uh, so we're going to talk about uh, some of the different geopolitical features of the European plain, the Mediterranean basin, all that. Jack, if you want to uh, talk a little bit about those in the context of recent European history. Sure. Um, yeah, so Europe's got uh, some really fascinating geography. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners have probably traveled there or have friends who have gone and visited and come back with photos of all the beautiful landscapes from various countries across the region. Um, really, the defining features, though, of the European landscape are the several mountain ranges, probably the most famous among those being the, the Alps, and uh, also it, it's river valleys. Um, so most of the societies and civilizations that we see now existing in contemporary Europe are, are based on smaller civilizations and, and societies that grew up around river valleys uh, long, long ago, centuries centuries back. And uh, basically, it's easy to contrast the European river systems versus, say, the North American river systems. Um, back when the United States was colonized, a lot of the early colonies uh, founded by the British on the eastern seaboard were focused on particular river valleys. So, for example, New York uh, focused around the Hudson River Valley and uh, where the Hudson River spills into the Atlantic is where we have New York City as a major trade port. Um, the Charles River in Boston is another example. But when you go deeper into the center of the country, you have the gigantic Mississippi River Basin, which, as an internal navigable waterway, connects a huge swath of territory and uh, brings people and goods up and down its waters from places as far as New Orleans all the way up through, say, Minneapolis, for example. Um, it's hundreds of miles of navigable waterways, and Europe just doesn't have that feature anywhere really on the continent. Um, you know, the Rhine is always uh, more or less enshrined in, in historical lore as a, a river valley that's been... Uh, Frequently contested, especially between the, the Germans and the French and uh, so on and so forth. But um, that's just one example of many river valleys throughout the continent that have shaped history. Because essentially, I like to think of Europe, especially in the northern part of Europe, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Poland, uh, and so on, as essentially like tiles uh, on a floor. And, and the lines between the tiles are are uh, river valleys, and um, that's where they're, you know, the borders are drawn and, and civilizations grow. Um, so that's northern Europe. Southern Europe, on the other hand, has a navigable waterway that 
connects everyone together, and that's the Mediterranean. Um, so you see a lot of the uh, original civilizations of history, the Greeks and the Romans, both based in the Mediterranean basin, and their scholarship easily shared across waterways, uh, going from Athens and Sparta over to Rome and, uh, and uh, other parts of Italy, and onwards and so forth to, uh, to Spain and uh, around the entire Mediterranean region. There's a common uh, environmental features across those countries from Spain all the way to Turkey and uh, the Levant. Uh, you'll see similar um, cuisines, for example. You'll see commonalities linguistically and culturally among uh, peoples from all these different places. So really, Southern Europe and Northern Europe are, are quite distinct, and you see that playing out today. It's transformed into economic differences that we see, for example, a lot of the countries that we hear of in recent times having, uh, for example, really heavy uh, national debt burdens are Spain, Italy, and Greece, all in Southern Europe. Uh, we tend to think of Germany and France and uh, the UK, even though it's now on its way out of the, the EU, as being you know the more productive uh, societies of the European Union. There's definitely those cultural differences, uh, especially in, in Western Europe. So that's... Uh, just a broad, broad overview. And I, I just want to add a couple more characteristics to the European continent too. Um, uh, you, so you discussed some of the some of the important ones. The the notion that you have this northern European plain that's uh, pocketed by river valleys, and then you have the southern European uh, Mediterranean kind of landmass and ocean mass that uh, is more interconnected than divided. Uh, and aside from that, I want to uh, bring into bring into the conversation the notion that. Europe is frankly kind of claustrophobic. Europe is a peninsula that is small by continental standards and has a lot of different societies packed into it uh, by uh, by civilizational standards. And uh, so that uh, I think over the uh, since the fall of Rome and since the uh, the diversion of different um, uh, of different power bases across the European continent has created a multipolar power system within a very small uh, political, geopolitical space, uh, which has, uh, in, you know, but some people have argued it's probably led to some of the success of Europe. Others have let, argued that it led to war and destruction. But it's one of the conditions that's there. The other thing I want to mention is that Europe, um, post-Rome, because post-Rome, Europe saw itself as very much the center of the world, and frankly, uh, after Rome, uh, after the fall of Rome, they still saw themselves as the center of the world. But uh, but still, uh, still... Uh, the uh, um, the world that they grew up in from say the say 476 AD and the fall of the Roman Empire and the early 1500s the Renaissance they largely had two uh, uh, two uh, two neighbors that were never particularly friendly and were integral nonetheless to the development of Europe there was a Muslim world in North Africa and the Middle East uh, that was more or less ruled by large empires sometimes even uh, continent spanning caliphates. Uh, that uh, that uh, were much better organized than the European city-states and the papacy. Uh, and then uh, you, at different times you had some form of polity on the, on the Eastern Front 
in terms of the in terms of the Russian Empire. Now it, that's a complicated story because it's not like you had this giant Russian bear from 500 to 1500 AD always on the on the side. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Katya, but Russia didn't really exist as more than an independent group of city states until about the 1200s. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. That's so uh, so so it's not like the Russians were always breathing down uh, breathing down uh, Western Europeans next. But there was always this kind of notion that the East was a different kind of civilization than what we uh, the Europeans had in the West. And uh, the further east you get, the more different the, uh, the kinds of empires and, uh, and civilizations you have out there. So, so uh, here we are. Let's, uh, let's assume we're, uh, we're at the birth of early modern Europe. We have uh, a Europe that's divided into a couple kingdoms that are loosely united by the papacy. Uh, you have a pretty well organized Muslim world to the south and the south uh, southeast, and then you have a somewhat organized, but not particularly organized, Slavic world uh, that melds into Western Europe uh, on the eastern border. Uh, and uh, there have been de- decades of religious war, and so now we're at the um, uh, we're at the uh, the Peace of Westphalia, right? Yeah. Uh, Katya, if you want to uh, resume the story from there and talk about how the uh, how the the European ideas of political order developed after um, after after that year, and uh, as how they start to develop as Europe entered the modern world. Sure, yeah, I can talk about that. So, with the Peace of Westphalia marking the end of the Thirty Years' War, you um, sorry, you kind of have the birth of the modern nation state, which is like where historians would, for the most part, place that concept, even though it arguably existed before with France. Most notably, I would say, maybe the United Kingdom to a lesser extent. So essentially, one of the main provisions of the Peace of Westphalia was that the German princes were granted sovereignty over their proper dominions. So that was kind of the beginning of the end for the Holy Roman Empire, which was the last vestige of um, European slash Christian universaldom or universalism on the continent. So I would say that the Peace of Westphalia really shows us transitioning into a period marked by nation states and later national self-determination rather than this idea of a Christian universal empire or even like the union of the European continent as a whole, like as a political entity. Um, I think with the Peace of Westphalia, that's when you really start seeing Europe like just more, more and more distinctively. The trend has been splitting off into separate nation states with their separate identities and their separate cultures, etc. Um, and I think you continue to see that up until this day. It's kind of been an upward trend in that direction, even though the EU is obviously a step towards integration. But I would argue that even though um, the continent has gotten more and more politically and economically um, integrated in the past century, you still have, meanwhile, and kind of like counterintuitively, such paradoxically an intensification of national sentiment, especially in recent years. That's kind of an overarching. No, no, that's view. that's a great six hundred years of history in thirty seconds. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's it's <laughs> more into depth. Into well, let's that. let's do that. So I, I think uh, one. Uh, let's so for for the for the listeners' sake, let's right. divide uh, post-Roman European conceptions of order into four broad, broad historical eras, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, um, you have the age of the papacy and the age of Christendom, mm-hmm. uh, which lasts roughly up until the religious wars in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, and uh, that is more premised on a universal church uh, that, uh, that 
controls what is rendered unto God, mm-hmm. and local princes, local kings uh, controlling what is rendered unto Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, then, after the the Reformation and all the religious wars that spawned up, then you had the uh, the rise of the uh, Westphalian system, which was more premised on these sovereign uh, sovereign states that uh, were usually fairly small. But mm-hmm. were uh, were generally not premised on nationhood so much as they were premised on princedom. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yes, I think the idea of nationhood as a cultural and ethnic phenomenon comes about later. But I think it's also important to mention the divorce of like moral imperative and politics that happens right around right. there. And I'm not exactly talking about church and state in the modern sense, but rather the idea that, like the Machiavellian principle that um, the prince or the head of state, if you will, has no moral obligation to act in like a Christian or otherwise right. like right. ethical manner when conducting state manners because you're a representative of the state and the state's only moral obligation is to exist. Raison d'etat, right? Raison is that, d'etat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you I have... can hear Luke smile at the word Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, we got to pay homage to our mentors sometimes. So, um, so, uh, so, so you have the Westphalian system. <laughs> Uh, you have the Westphalian system, uh, and then move forward. That, that lasted through Frederick the Great. That lasted through the age of exploration and the ages of uh, European expansion around the world. It also lasted into the age when the the Ottoman Empire started to become the sick man of Europe, and uh, the Muslim world did not become as big a factor in European calculations due to things like the going around the Cape of Good Hope. And, uh, and other various technological advances within Europe. Meanwhile, the Russians, right, right. Meanwhile, the Russians began to rise up as a formidable force by the late 18th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, so, um, and the Enlightenment happens. You have all these, uh, intellectual developments and geoeconomic, geopolitical developments in Europe while the Westphalian system is struggling against itself. French Revolution, all this changes, uh, all kinds of upheaval across Europe. The basic premises of Westphalia are questioned. And 1815, Castlereagh and Metternich get together around the table, have a couple drinks, and uh, hammer out the, um, the, uh, the Peace of Vienna. Mm-hmm. Now, Katya, can you talk to us a little bit about how the Peace of Vienna differed from the Peace of Westphalia? Sure. I would say that it's not as much a radical departure as an evolution in the sense that you still have less explicitly the idea of the balance of power in the former Westphalian system. However, it was more that each state acting in its own selfish self-interest would eventually achieve some sort of international order. Um, But that obviously didn't work as the Napoleonic Wars (laughs) provided a pretty clear example of. So I think with the, um, with Metternich's Congress system, it was more explicitly delineated in the sense that, they were actually going to carve out a, like a system of alliances and a, like a more concrete arrangement so that, um, well, essentially it was set up as like a defense mechanism against further expansion from France. But um, un- like the philosophy underlying that was that, okay, we actually have to create this like shifting system of alliances that has to be monitored by politicians and by statesmen in order for in order to preserve kind of the integrity of every state. But, like, integrity, like, I guess it was more in order to ensure the survival of the main powers, the idea of national self-determination and, like, independence in that way for smaller, um, like, in the Balkans, for example. 
that hadn't really entered into the European right. consciousness yet. And correct me it, if I'm wrong, but some of the smaller states started to get gobbled up by the bigger empires. In exactly, this exactly. Too, right? They were kind of traded around in the interest right, of this right. balance of power. It was kind of the idea. None of these big powers should be able to destroy one another. So we have these small territories that can kind of be shifted Trading around. Blocks, yeah. They were pretty much interchangeable. Not much attention was paid to the people within, like, and their national identity and their kind of nationalist agitation, although that comes a little bit later. But I, I would say that that was a big part of the eventual disintegration of the Congress system, as well as, like, getting more, like, ever more rigid alliances right, and right. Uh, the unification of Germany, which is a geopolitical threat. And so when the geopolitical constellation changes and the system starts to solidify and break down because it's solidifying, mm-hmm. that's when you have the breakdowns. Of, and I mean, for that matter, the, the imperial competition, too, that has taken right, over yeah. at this time. Uh, that's when you have the international crises that lead to the crisis of 1914, and eventually that mm-hmm. doesn't get too resolved, so that leads to the crisis of 1939. Yeah. And the whole European order is swept away under the tides of total war. Right. Although, um, on the point with imperialism, I would say it acted a little bit more of like a pressure release valve Mm, as mm. to like tensions on the continent, because instead of, you know, there were still like territorial um, issues on the continent, obviously, but a lot of it was outward looking. So you suddenly have this whole world up for grabs that you can annex to yourself and kind of explore that in economic and political terms. So it didn't, it kind of took the pressure and the attention off of like inter-European relations because- suddenly you have this whole new frontier that wasn't all, like you were talking about that European claustrophobia, which leads to, I, w- I would say, it would lead to like a lot of continental wars in European history. Um, but when you have somewhere outward to look, then you're not as focused on making war on your neighbor because there's enough land to go around, if you will. Which the peoples of the developing world did not particularly find that no. palatable, but it worked for <laughs> the Europeans for a while. So, so, uh, so, so then we get to the world crisis. Then we get to the world wars. And you know, the geopolitics of the world wars could be a, a topic for a whole podcast series in itself. Jack, we got to do that one of these days. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the, um, uh, the, the basic thing that I want to highlight here, uh, once we get to the fi- the fourth and final stage of European order post World War II is that by 1945, all of the major European powers had exhausted themselves and were more or less, not necessarily sick and tired of the old, uh, the old balance of power system, but didn't see how they could maintain it in a nuclear age. And aside from that, uh, the greatest threats to European sovereignty no longer came from uh, inside Europe as they had for centuries with uh, the threat of France overrunning uh, Germany or Germany overrunning France, but they now started to come from outside of Europe from uh, that old uh, kind of backwater region that nobody had ever taken seriously up until maybe Peter the Great, if then, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union. Uh, And meanwhile, the United States uh, was more or less another imperial power that could threaten Europe if it wanted to. Uh, And some would argue that it successfully threatened Europe into joining its security orbit. Uh, But but overall, Europe became uh, a kind of playground for different players outside of Europe during the Cold War. And that situation uh, ended uh, somewhat in the 1990s. And the, um, but the, the, thing, the thing to realize about that is European integration started in earnest uh, as the fourth real 
uh, European Unity Project, European Order Project back in the 1950s, right? And the end of the Cold War did a lot to expedite that process. What we are seeing now with Brexit, with the Greek pension crisis, with uh, the fights between European powers over how many refugees each one's supposed to take and stuff like that, I think is a questioning of this new European order, probably the shortest lived of the last four. Uh, so, Katya, what are, you, what are your, th- your thoughts on that? Before we get back to Jack. Sure, yeah, my thoughts on the new European order. The new European order the, yeah. and uh, everything mm-hmm. that I just said in that very brief and probably somewhat controversial <laughs> yeah. talk about the okay. meaning of European order in the 20th century. Yeah. Sure, well, you said you talked about European integration a little bit and how it's starting to break down a little bit right now. And I think I've been thinking about this. I think one of the causes of that is that um, the European Union was never meant to be a security apparatus. And in fact, its security capabilities are quite weak. So now that, and that functioned fine, I think, during the Cold War, because Europe's primary issues were economics, politics to a lesser extent, but a lot of it was rebuilding after the war and kind of gearing up. And the origins of the EU were economic, like with the European coal and steel community, things like that. And only now, and like probably questionably, if this is even happening, is it becoming a more politically and militarily integrated system? Um, however, that like integrating economically is one thing, but integrating your militaries and your politics brings up a whole new set of questions about um, like national sovereignty and national identity, which I think the Europeans are not ready for. But during the Cold War, I think this functioned fine because NATO was the main, and you were talking about like the cross-Atlantic alliance with the United States. That was the main deterrent for like security issues in terms of like the frontier with Russia, and also there was no, it was a threat that kind of hung over the continent, but I don't think anybody ever thought that it would come to an actual, like, you know, actually come to blows. Okay. And if okay. so, the target would probably be the United States right, and right, not right, Europe. Right, yeah. So security, I would argue that security was not as much on the forefront Interesting, interesting. of European okay. decision-making, whereas now you have real, actual, tangible security threats to the European continent, the European entity as a whole, and I don't think that they are prepared to deal with that as a European Union, which is where you see that breakdown in cooperation happening. You see that with the refugee crisis, all of that internal arguing as to that issue. And then with Russia gearing up right now as well, I think it's a whole different issue because now there are actual tangible military struggles that are happening in Ukraine. There are boots on the ground. It's not just this kind of like theoretical threat. Right, right. Because that forces you into a new perspective. Right. And we have yet to see where the Europeans will take that on a security standpoint. So, uh, so Jack, I want to get back to you real quick because we are privileged to have you and we don't have you for very long. So, um, (laughs) so, but, so there's this idea that Katya and I have been discussing for the last couple of minutes about uh, European geopolitical order as being fundamentally a question of tension between a greater Europe, a Europe as a whole that is not necessarily centrally directed, but definitely has an identity that needs to be preserved, versus the identities of the major powers that make up that European broader identity, be that the, the princes and princelets of the 14th century, or the uh, the uh, the great empires, the Habsburgs, the, Ho- the Hohenzollerns, or however you pronounce it. Hohenzollerns, Hol- thank you. Uh, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns, the uh, um, the and and those those guys of the 18th century, 
or the great nation states, the Bismarcks, the uh, what's the Italian guy's name, Giovanni? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, and for that matter of uh, of De Gaulle and of Churchill of the 19th and 20th centuries, there's always been a kind of uh, a kind of uh, yeah uh, a kind of uh, um, dichotomy between the the European idea and the components of the European idea. And in the present system of European world order, geopolitically driven, uh, there's more of an emphasis on Europe as a whole. But in the last couple of years, we've been seeing an increasing emphasis on those different parts of Europe. What do you think is going to be – well, I mean, we can make, make predictions about the end result uh, of this all the time. But if you were advising strategic planners in Europe and the United States and Russia about what are we going to be seeing in the next couple of decades, what would you, what would you predict? I mean, I, I think uh, there's some, some predictable stuff, but for the most part, it seems to be very much up in the air to me. It definitely is. And uh, to go back to that dichotomy you mentioned between uh, the, the kind of pan-European ideas and, and philosophies versus the individual interests of uh, and ideas of the component parts of Europe and its different nations, I think um, where you see the commonalities in Europe are, are definitely at the intellectual level, right? Um, shared passions for all of the different arts and sciences uh, that have flourished throughout Euro- European universities for centuries. For most of history, those traditions have only really permeated the upper intellectual classes. And despite the vast, rapid spread of, of education and literacy that we saw in the past 150 or so years across most of the continent, I think that divide still exists in Europe. And um, I think that divide is growing deeper. Um, And you see also that in addition to that divide, which is manifesting itself through, for example, the Brexit vote, among uh, a lot of other things, uh, Spain has its own set of sovereignty issues internally that it's dealing with, for example. Um, In addition to that, though, I think you also see that some European countries are taking the issues facing the European Union. Uh, they're approaching it and handling it a lot more differently than others. Um, just as kind of like an anecdotal example, and this is a bit dated because it's a year old, but about a year ago, a uh, year and a month, I was in Germany and Austria for about a week and a half. To oh, a now you're making uh, this all a- about you, huh, Jack, huh? <laughs> Not really about me, more about Germany and Austria. <laughs> um, but one of the things I noticed in Munich, and then I went to Salzburg, and Munich uh, is, is the economic core of, of Germany for the most part. It's very highly developed. It was part of West Germany during the Cold War. Um, it, it's a very cosmopol- cosmopolitan city. And there's a large uh, community of Turkish and Middle Eastern uh, civilians there, and, and not just refugees either. It's also uh, people who come there for vacation. It's wealthy types of folks from uh, the Gulf states, for example, who come on you know their summer holidays and whatnot. And um, so you saw a, a very diverse um population in Germany, and more so than I, than I really expected when I first arrived. Um, 
By contrast, in Austria, and I only went to Salzburg, so I can't speak for places like Vienna, but in Salzburg, it was exactly how you think it is when you see the sound of music. And um, you, you really felt isolated from the rest of the EU. You didn't see any of the, the struggles of the European Union uh, taking place there. Um, you didn't really notice the societal uh, tensions that are, are definitely noticeable in, in other places. Um, and people were just kind of going on life as always, life as usual, is, is at least the perception that I came away with. I'm sure there are people who have traveled there and come away with the opposite perceptions from both places. But the moral of the story is that um, I think Europe over the past several years has failed to agree on how to order its priorities. Uh, as Katya rightly noted, the European Union started out as an economic project. And it morphed into a social, political, security uh, conglomerate that didn't come together very neatly. And the result of that is that there are people who want to restitch the quilt and try and do a better job of it. And there are others who want to say, hey, this patch is so horribly sewn on, we should just rip it off and, and we'll be fine without it. <laughs> um, and that's where you get the conversations from several years ago about kicking out Greece because of its financial impropriety. Uh, it's where the UK says we don't fit in this puzzle and, and we shouldn't be a part of it. And the lack of unity, uh, it, it, it spans both uh, the nationalist level and also that intellectual cosmopolitan ideological level across Europe and uh, just the fact that European leadership has never really been able to get all their ducks in a row is something that they're never really going to be able to escape. Um, I don't think you're ever really going to see, unless all of Europe faces precisely the same types of circumstances and threats and opportunities all at the same time. I really doubt you ever see Europe as we know it really coalesce into a coherent political and economic and security arrangement. Um, well, the by the way, that, sounds, is, that kind of crisis has sounds ever faced the same situation throughout the continent um, at the same time. And, and I really doubt that'll ever happen in the future. So, so what do we have then? We have a, uh, a situation where we muddle forward and you can't escape the cosmopolitan European ideal, but neither can you escape right. the individualistic uh, component nation states and identities ideal either. And so how do you balance those? I think is that's going to be the big challenge for European statesmen in the major countries at least, but also probably in the smaller countries in Europe too. And for that matter, any country that has an interest in the future of Europe as a stable and well-governed political order – up to and including the upcoming presidents of the United States, too. And I would love to hear Kaya's opinion on, on this, but I, I personally would argue that the European Union overstretched itself um, during it, its period of growth in, uh, in the good times, so to speak. I really don't think outside of, of Western, fully developed Europe, that it was really... Um, necessary to expand as far as it did and to also attach, for example, um, NATO membership or cooperation with NATO as a uh, prerequisite for being part of the European Union. They, they, 
obviously their you know politics and economics can never fully escape one another but it, the, the European Union morphed into something it was never really intended to be and it never really had a, a clear course for its own development um, it was all, all very vague and I, I really don't think that it was a, a very constructive uh, planning process you know when things the question comes along of oh should we add a country like Greece or, or Portugal for example um, and I think that's really come back to, to bite everyone uh, afterwards. So I think that personally, and uh, Kaya, you may disagree with me on this, but I personally think that the European Union probably, if it was contained to, say, Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, and the UK, that would be a perfectly coherent uh, economic arrangement between those countries. Um, they're economies are similar enough and their governments are, are like-minded enough that that smaller block could get along just fine. And then you could have, say, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Greece, um, the so-called pigs, which were so problematic for their other European neighbors. Um, if they had their own block with similar conventions and similar rules, but just adjusted for the situation that they find themselves in in terms of their government finances and the status and, and nature of their economies and their civilizations, um, they could have coalesced as well. And, and these two blocks, I think, would naturally uh, operate side by side rather than against one another. Um, so I personally, I think if we all had to go back a couple decades and do everything over again, um, I think that's how it, it might be done, and that might work. But, Katia, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, I don't fully disagree. I think as an economic entity, the European Union was so successful in its early decades that the thinking was just, well, this is working so far, let's keep adding to it. And that probably went a little bit too quickly as, at times, especially when you get into political and security implications. I think it's impossible, like given the geopolitics of Europe, that every single member of the European Union is ever going to have the same interests. Obviously, the Eastern countries are more concerned right now with the frontier with Russia and that threat. The South is more concerned with the refugee crisis. So I think in that sense, it's very difficult right now to hammer out a coherent European policy as to either of those issues. And there are obviously smaller ones as well, but those are just two major. So... In that sense, we do see the European Union getting more and more ineffectual. I think as an economic entity, it still might be a little bit overstretched, but I still think that the North and the South could have been integrated successfully, as they were. And as long as the North is willing to bear a little bit of the economic burden, I think it could benefit the whole continent as a whole, Like especially when you get into the freedom of movement and things like that. Um, I do think that has been beneficial for Europe as a whole. However, I do agree that right now the EU is kind of in jeopardy and I'm a little bit nervous about it. I definitely don't. I think what's happened in recent years is the whole experiment has been overstretched to the point where now you see a lot of backlash and populist and nationalist movements within nations. And that worries me because I think it's going to swing around too far to the other extreme because the fact remains that European issues today and a lot of global issues especially security issues, cannot be addressed by any state individually, and yet that's what the trend been so far in like recent years. Um, 
like for example, like I think there needs to be a coherent European policy towards the refugee crisis, but obviously adjusted for regional differences and what every country is able and willing to do. But so far, we haven't really seen that. So I definitely think every country's position should be reflective of like every country's geopolitical location should reflect what sort of like commitments it makes and what sort of policy it adopts. But I still think it's possible to integrate that into some sort of overarching framework because Europe is so interconnected today that regressing from that just isn't, I don't think it's an option. And even if it is an option, I don't think it's one that is beneficial to anybody or that we need to adopt. Well, so yeah, yeah. So you guys are are talking about north south issues, which is fascinating and is very important. And I would just add another another part of the part of the equation here is that the the east west issue is equally important, and it was done with equally uh, non holistic judgment. Either I mean, basically, we all know the main reason why the why the EU and NATO stretch all the way to Russia's borders or almost all the way there nowadays is because the Clinton and Bush administrations put a lot of pressure on the European Union and NATO to help the United States put a boot on Russia's neck in the 1990s and early 2000s, the judgment of which uh, we can discuss all day. But uh, that it goes to show when you put one set of concerns, namely security and geopolitical concerns, over other sorts of concerns that will be affected by that set action, like refugee stuff, like fiscal stuff, like can you get Poland and Germany into the same cultural entity as France and Portugal and Italy uh, and have it be relatively harmonious. These are things that every political operator needs to be thinking about. And uh, there was probably some thought about it in the uh, in um, in uh, in the 90s. But, Jack, I think you're right. Uh, there was kind of a kind of trigger happy notion of, well, we just need to expand it to cover all of Europe. Uh, and uh, the consequences of the true diversity of Europe uh, combined into one uh, one little uh, little uh, or I guess big um, political entity was uh, was not fully looked at. Right, and I so. do think along with that that a large part of why the EU function functioned and continues to function was on like a cultural and you know, societal basis. And as you stretch that, you're calling into question what is Europe. Why are these radically different, like, civilizations all united in one political entity and people are starting to question why they're having this identity forced on them? And I think the more you expand that identity, the more backlash you get. Right, right. And people want to revert to just their national identity. Like, I don't think the Ukraine, Turkey, like, the Slavic countries have enough in common with a country like the United Kingdom or even Spain to be part of the same political system in that way. And I don't think that's beneficial to everybody or anybody. <laughs> right. Well, we are almost out of time and we've gone about eight minutes over time, in fact, which is the sign of a great conversation. Uh, but before we go and all get together and uh, join in DC to go write up a comprehensive policy paper for the next president of the United States on how to suggest <laughs> kindly for the Europeans to reform themselves uh, from their boisterous younger siblings here on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, I just like to like to uh, like to ask Katya, Jack. Do you guys have any last comments, last uh, uh, thoughts, and insights on the question of European order, European geopolitics, the fate of the EU, these kinds of questions? Yeah, really quickly, Katya brought up the refugee situation, which we we really didn't pay uh, enough justice to to that 
Um, it, it's really weighing heavily on the continent. And the way that I perceive the, the countries to be handling it, I, I kind of like to draw, um, it, it really has a similar resemblance to the way OPEC kind of operates right now. Um, or I, I personally see some similarities in the behaviors of the two groups as far as the individuals within the European Union uh, advocating for their own interests, but at the same time trying to uphold um, the ideals and commitments of the union without having to commit too many of their own resources to solve the problem, right? Um, just how OPEC member countries are saying, yes, we want to cut global oil supply and therefore we will cap our own production levels. However, uh, it'd be best if my country didn't have to cut production, <laughs> right? <laughs> Whereas in Europe, you've got countries saying, yes, we should accept these poor refugees whose lives have been turned upside down, sideways, and inside out uh, cruelly, and, and they deserve better opportunities elsewhere, absolutely in favor of uh, opening up opportunities for them. I think most people can get on board with that idea. At the same time, these countries are saying our economies are stagnant. We don't know if we have jobs for these people. And if we do have jobs for these people, are those going to be new jobs or are those jobs going to replace a job currently held by one of our own native citizens? And that's a, a tough question uh, to answer because nobody really knows. And it's, it's sometimes very hard to be that charitable, especially as a, as a Machiavellian state. Uh, which is, you know, experimenting with a more of a constructivist uh, international order. It, it's really fascinating to watch, but it, it's also rather tragic. And I really do wish that uh, the European Union had worked itself out better than, than it currently is. I'm sure you guys both can uh, share that sentiment. But at the end of the day, um, reality has a way of rearing its ugly head and that head is it, it's really ugly it's just sometimes you, you just look at the world and say wow it's it's really terrible that things are this way but there are reasons why europe is in the situation it's in um it has always gone back and forth between optimism about what it's capable of and what its people can do and it has achieved great things in a great many fields and then it has always seemingly retracted after a period of great accomplishment into its uh, traditional fears and uh, paranoia and judgments and, and skepticism about itself. Um, it's kind of like watching a, a kid kind of hit 20 and then revert back to 10 and have to grow up over and over again. Um so I think you're seeing that play out now with the refugee crisis. Europe thought it was grown up, and then all of a sudden it was faced with a problem it didn't know how to handle. And uh, it's it's got to figure itself out all over again. So sorry, I think I just rambled over mm -hmm. Katya's portion of time a little bit there oh, too. But okay. anyway, yeah, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to, to just uh, – Share those thoughts. We're always happy to happy to sh uh, uh, show the thoughts of intelligent thinkers, and if only there were more of us out there, then maybe the world would be a better place. But uh, you know, I, uh, I I like to say sometimes, uh, Jack, this kind of goes back to your point. Um, 
politics is not really about building a better world or making sure that everybody has the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, those are nice when you get them on the side. But I think the fundamental task of politics, and this is very much constrained by geopolitics, is basically figuring out how to preserve what you have, how to keep people and nations and civilizations from destroying each other just so you can live, just so you can have uh, what we've advanced to preserved. And only once you've figured out a just and sustainable order that can preserve what you have, then you can find a way to move forward and do that kind of stuff. And I think right now the big crisis in the European Union and the big crisis of European civilization as a whole is how do we keep it from collapsing on itself under the weight of uh, nationalism, under the weight of fiscal irresponsibility, under the weight of cultural conflict. And uh, hopefully we have great great leaders rising up in enlightened publics, demanding the best of them. Uh, Katya, you'll probably be advising them. Jack, you too. I will probably be <laughs> writing about it from a dark hole somewhere in Washington, D.C. But we will, uh, we will all be alive when these events are happening. And hopefully they happen towards the best. But we will see. So, so uh, with that, I would like to thank both uh, Katya Lopatko and Jack Anderson for joining to me on this third episode of Geopolitik. Thank you guys very much. Oh, thanks for, thank you for getting this organized, Luke and, and Katya. It's great to have your input here. Thank yeah. you so much for joining. Great so, uh, speaking with you guys, thank you for having me. It I was a real pleasure. Yeah, oh, you'll be back for sure. We'll need you back for, uh, for other great, stuff great. in the future. Can't now, wait. now the, um, the next episode of Geopolitik to our listeners is going to be, uh, Jack and I hosting Kenneth Lee, uh, a specialist in Korea and China and general East Asian studies. And we're going to be talking about the geopolitics of the East Asian Pacific littoral and the history of that era, uh, some of the stuff that is going on in that area right now, the different conceptions of world order, similar to what we discuss nowadays, but transported half a world away. Uh, we hope you will join us for that, and we hope you will enjoy that as much as you enjoyed this one. You better have enjoyed this one, by the way. We're recording it just for you. So, anyways, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we look forward to having you next time. And Jack and Katya, thanks again for being here.